0: Welcome to New Books in African Studies. I am Dr. Beke Okelina, your host. My guest today is Dr. Luke Mezak. Dr. Mezak is an emergency medical resident physician at Brown University and a medical historian. Today, he will be speaking with me about his book, No More to Spend, Neglect and the Construction of Scarcity in Malawi's History of Healthcare. Dr. Mezak, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much. It's a real honor to be here.
0: So I find your profile really interesting. you are um, you're a medical doctor and also an academic um, historian. Um, you first had your PhD um, in medical history uh, before you went to uh, to medical school. so um, why these uh, interest in both?
1: Yeah uh, thanks so much for the question and for having me on. So, yeah, I think history of medicine and, and medical training do work well together if you have the, the time for the endless uh, schooling that it, that it requires. But um, I got the idea because when I was an undergrad, I did spend a good amount of time around um, physician historians, physician anthropologists, physician philosophers, um, all affiliated with the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard University, and I saw from them that you could combine um, a career in in research and teaching with clinical practice and you would get to actually you know care for patients while addressing some of the deeper causes of illness that your practice elucidated um, and I found that really satisfying the idea of you know, working with my hands, working with patients, while at the same time uh, getting at the more fundamental root causes of illness, um, seemed something worth doing. So when I uh, when I started medical school, I quickly uh, applied to the um, history of medicine uh, Ph.D. program. Uh, it's actually called the history and sociology of science at the University of Pennsylvania, and so I ended up completing a uh, an MD and a PhD at the University of Pennsylvania um, between 2010 and 2018, and currently I'm in the the next phase of my medical training, uh, which is residency in emergency medicine at Brown University. So it's a long road, but it does allow you to do uh, a lot of things um, and to uh, to marry to marry interests in a way that I thought was uh, you know a, a real privilege when I started, and I still do.
0: Okay, so your your book looks at the political um, economy of um, healthcare in um, in Malawi. So why uh, Malawi? Why did you write this book?
1: Yeah, so when I started uh, my PhD, I had already spent uh, a few months in Malawi. I'd spent um, the better part of a year living in Rwanda prior. Uh, to starting my PhD, but I spent a summer living in Malawi as well. And that was um, as part of a research project to look at Malawi's AIDS response, along with some uh, physicians who I knew who were affiliated with Médecins Sans Frontières, uh, Doctors Without Borders. And when I was there, I did spend a little time in the archives in Malawi. Um, And I'm sure, as you you know, working in archives in in, in Africa can be challenging. Um, their, their funding is often extremely limited. Um, but even while I was there, I found some amazing documents uh, that showed, you know, that there was a longer history to the problems that I was looking at. And, you know, when I, while I was interested in the scarcity, the paucity of uh, response to Malawi's um, AIDS crisis, I saw that there had been similar complaints about The inadequate response to health crises and you know chronic health problems in Malawi and its pre uh, in its colonial precursor Nyasaland's um, uh, health system. So you know when I got back and and started my uh, PhD studies, I really wanted to focus on Malawi. And the more I looked into the country, the more uh, interested I was. It's you know it's a small an impoverished country, um, but it has a rich history, and the um, the historiography is still is still I think too thin, uh, despite the fact that there are some amazing historians of Malawi. So I wanted to join that community and uh, and and contribute in whatever way I could. And I thought that the the most interesting way, the best way, was to uh, combine my interests in in medical practice and um, public health and global health in the present with this deeper and longer History of uh, health financing and uh, political history and political economy of health in Malawi.
0: So you um, you just mentioned um, that Malawi is a small um, impoverished um, country. At the same time, your book is arguing against um, um, against scarcity as the reason for the failure to provide health services in in Malawi. Um, you actually argue that robust healthcare system in Malawi has long been possible. So given Malawi's um, poverty, um, why do you think um, this is um, possible? Where are the resources to come uh, to come from? You said there are resources available to provide um, healthcare. What are those resources? Where will they come from? Yeah.
1: yeah. A lot of my interest in Malawi stemmed from the fact that Because it is one of the poorest countries on the planet, a lot of discussion about it has a sense of uh, fatalism. And I don't think that's true of Malawians themselves, but I do think it's true of of, uh, public health experts, um, global health experts, development uh, economists, who often speak of Malawi as though um, much more is not possible. And if you look at the history of Malawi, these claims are ubiquitous. These claims have come from colonial officials uh, during the time of the British Empire. They came from development experts and domestic officials during the reign of Hastings Kamuzu Banda, the um, the president between the sixties and the nineties, and they continued in the decades that followed. But what my book tries to explore is what is the rhetoric of scarcity and what does it obscure? What are the claims made about why more is not possible? And how are those claims sometimes challenged and uh, overturned? And so, you know, during the colonial uh, period, there were often claims that, you know, Malawi. Is this backwater? Malawi has little in the way of natural resources. Uh, Malawi is a landlocked nation, and has a very low per capita income. And so, to spend more on healthcare and education and other social services in Malawi uh, really wasn't possible. But at the same time, you know, Malawi was a huge source of of migrant labor. Malawi had its own resources extracted in the form of a railway loan. Uh, we can get into more detail on this, but a railway loan that took up a huge portion of its budget, largely for the benefit of the financier who, who pushed for its construction, even though that railway was in no way economical for the, for the colony. Uh, and its resources, you know, continued to be used for purposes outside of the welfare of its people. After uh, independence, uh, a huge portion of Malawi's resources were spent on things like personal palaces for Hastings Kamuzubanda instead of on health and education. And um, the the claims of scarcity always tend to focus on you know, narrow budgetary uh, analyses that tend to elide the these uh, realities of resource extraction and these uh, realities of uh, transnational financial flows that show you that Malawi is part of a global system. Malawi's not, um, Malawi is not an island unto itself. And so while it is a poor country, there are more resources to be had. And that's been true for uh, at least a century.
0: And so uh, what would be some of those um, resources today uh, that could be harnessed for, uh, toward improving healthcare in Malawi?
1: I think it's the same resources that could be harnessed in much of uh, what is called the developing world. You know, the, the UN and other global bodies have put out reports on illicit financial flows, uh, that is, um, resources that, you know, truly, if, if we had a a just system of, uh, international, uh, taxation, uh, would belong to countries like Malawi, but instead are, are flowing to, uh, wealthy countries and wealthy corporations. Um, and they would come be coming from a, a greater recognition of the history of resource extraction from places like Malawi. And so international aid would be, uh, would be understood uh, more as a reparation than a, than a handout. Um, so, you know, there's, there is money to be had. Um, and, you know, the fact that Malawi continues to spend uh, a few dozen dollars, you know, 25, $30 uh, dollars per patient per year on healthcare, while the United States spends per patient per year on healthcare is just a reality that does not have to persist. Um, When I was in Malawi, I saw, uh, and this gets back to my my interest in medical training, because I think being at the bedside makes you realize how how immediate these concerns are for people on the ground and how they're not abstract. I saw a young man who had been shot in the leg uh, by a stray police bullet. During a demonstration and ended up losing his leg because there was no vascular surgeon in the country who could repair his injury. And that's an injury that I see at our hospitals here in the United States, that I see here in Rhode Island, that is readily reparable, that that does not need to result in amputation. But in Malawi, it was a foregone conclusion, at least for the, the doctors taking care of him, that he would lose his leg. While, um, well, here in the United States, when I see that injury, those patients are taken immediately to surgery and often keep their legs. Um, so, you know, unless we're willing to accept the fact that uh, that young man has to lose his leg because he lives in Malawi, then I think we need to be a lot bolder about taking on these claims of scarcity and seeing where exactly they come from.
0: Yep. Yeah, uh, you you mentioned that there's no vascular surgeon in the whole of Malawi, a country with 15 million people, but in South Africa, there are those um, surgeons. And I know this is probably taking you a little bit, um, taking you outside of Malawi if we are looking at uh, the region. And and I'm trying to bring this to, uh, connect this to the question of race uh, as well. Uh, Let's say if it was a black poor person in South Africa. Uh, will they be able to assess uh, a vascular surgeon in South Africa?
1: Yeah, that's a hypothetical. I haven't I haven't dealt with in person yet. Um, mm-hmm. I imagine they would have an easier time of doing it than my Malawian friend did, but right. but still, it would be a challenge. I mean, those resources, like vascular surgeons, like well equipped ORs, are still concentrated in in. Uh, in cities and communities of, of relative advantage, and in South Africa, that means historically white communities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, until until the nineteen nineties, you know, the United States and South Africa were two of the countries with without universal healthcare systems. So Since the nineteen nineties, you know, South Africa has um, has set up uh, a nominally universal healthcare system, but still the de facto realities on the ground speak otherwise. So, so yeah, in, in South Africa, in the United States, um, wealthy white patients still have access to better care than poor black patients. Uh, And that's true in, in Malawi as well. You know, wealthy expatriates find themselves with access to much better care, even in Malawi. And of course they have access to, you know, to, to medical flights that would take them, uh, to places with greater resources, uh, so the question of race is inescapable um, in Malawi and uh, and elsewhere. That that comes to the fore in the history as well. You know, if you look at the 1950s and 1960s, Malawi was part of what was known as a federation um, that involved uh, Southern Rhodesia (today's Zimbabwe), Northern Rhodesia (today's Zambia), and Nyasaland (today's Malawi), and the the government that ruled it was was essentially Southern Rhodesian, and if you know the history of Southern Rhodesia, you know that is it is a history of uh, of white supremacy, of avowed white supremacy. Uh, when asked about the nature of the federation, of the nature of the relationship between uh, Africans, between Black Africans and white settlers, the leadership of the Southern Rhodesian government claimed it was a partnership akin to that between. A rider and his horse. So that can give you some sense of how resources were split between the white population and the black population. And even during a time, the 1950s and 1960s of relative, relatively high spending on healthcare, uh, the per capita spending on European settlers and and black Africans was as disparate or more disparate than ever.
0: Yeah. So your your book uh, starts with uh with the story of uh this young man you just um mentioned and um it's it's a sad tale of the state of the healthcare system in um in Africa and also specifically in a in a in a poorer country like um like Malawi so I'm wondering why the choice of this story to start um start the account um uh, to start to start uh, the book, uh, doesn't it play into this narrative uh, that what the West sees in, in Africa is this uh, decay? Doesn't it pathologize uh, the people? Yeah.
1: I mean, hope, I hope not. I, I chose the story because it challenges, it, it asks a challenging question, which I think is challenging for even many present day progressive-minded public health experts and even historians of medicine, which is, is Africa, is our poor nations in sub-Saharan Africa, like Malawi, uh, are they fated to provide only the barest essentials for their populations? Is the nature of scarcity such that even the most high-minded of African governments uh, can only provide, you know, basic public health and medical services, and things like vascular surgery will just have to wait. They are just not possible. And I think that tone comes through much of the public health literature. It comes through even in the assumptions that some of my fellow historians have made when writing about healthcare in Africa. And it's a, it's a, it's a question that I wanted to pose. As a provocation, because you know if if innocent was to be cared for in a way that was expert and uh, and sufficient medically sufficient, then you would need vastly different provision of medical care you'd need well stocked operating rooms you would need well-trained surgeons you would need Uh, emergency uh, medical response that would allow him to get from his place of injury to the OR within a few hours where he would be operated on by a well-trained vascular surgeon. And these are things I take for granted here in Rhode Island. Um, You know, that surgery has been around since the 1950s. It's been the standard of care in the United States since the Korean War. But to suggest that it's possible in a place like Malawi remains, uh, remains controversial. And so I hoped to use it you know, not as a measure to pathologize at all, but as a, as, a, as a way to ask how much is truly possible and how willing are we to, to challenge, to question the assumptions of scarcity that have been floating in the ether for so long.
0: Thank you um I want to ask a question on the role of the Christian missions in um, in Malawi. We know they've been very active in Malawi from colonial times um to today. Um, you say in the book that in the early years that missionaries um, used medicine to demonstrate goodwill and also to secure um, legitimacy so has that uh changed or is it still the case um Today, what is the level of the mission's involvement in the healthcare versus the government's uh, own involvement in Malawi's uh, healthcare system?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Malawi is long known as a land of missions. And not for, you know, not without good reason. When I first went to Malawi, uh, my plane was filled with Scottish missionaries, young people you know, in bright t-shirts, matching t-shirts, proclaiming, you know, their their uh, desire to to bring healing to, you know, to uh, Malawians in the name of God. And that's a tradition that stems back a century and a half, at least to the time of David Livingston, who uh, spent a good amount of his time in what is today uh, Malawi, who set up, uh, some of his initial uh, African missions in what is today Malawi. Those missions uh, still stand today, if in slightly different form. So one of the early parts of the book, I, I chronicle this this history of medical missions in Malawi, and I don't go into as much detail as some fellow historians like Marku um do. Uh, um but I do try to uh, show how that that initial history, that that early early history, that pre-colonial and early colonial history, did play into the history of government medical provision, uh, which is more my focus. Um, but I do also try to um, point out that Malawi isn't entirely unique; that the presence of missions in Malawi is not uh, a, a great explanation for the relative absence of government health care in Malawi. Uh, many surrounding countries or surrounding colonies, depending on which time you look at, uh, Zambia, Tanzania, they had similar uh, per capita amounts of medical missionaries, but they they still aren't talked of in quite the same way as Malawi. I think because of David Livingston's history in Malawi, because of these high profile figures in Malawi's history, it's become known as a, a land of medical missionaries. But I, I do hope to, to complicate that history and show that, you know, for a lot of, um, for a lot of Malawians, uh, though that was a part of their lives, but government medical provision was as important, if not more important, depending on, uh, the period for medical provision.
0: Yeah, because you you talked about um, maybe I believe maybe in the nineteen twenties um, uh, or so that the people rarely had any uh, experience of uh, the colonial government's uh, healthcare system. Usually, what they have is more coercive when the government is trying to to curb certain diseases such as uh, smallpox, which was recurring um, in the area. So um, when did a shift um, occur? But before you answer that, I'm actually interested to know how the people responded to these uh, coercive measures that were being taken by uh, by the government to curb diseases.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. The early 20th century didn't see much in the way of, of um, medical care in Malawi, whether it was missionary or government, you know, there were these high profile missions, but for the, for the average Malawian uh, or Niasalander uh, at the time, uh, medical care, you know, government provided or missionary provided or European medical care, whatever you want to call it, was not an important part of of daily life compared, for instance, to these coercive measures, Uh, coercive measures to to pay the hut tax, uh, coercive measures that. Uh, were done in the name of disease control. Uh, so to fight diseases like smallpox and sleeping sickness, the government resorted to measures like hut burning and past systems. Um, these were not viewed favorably, and they did occasion a number of movements. Uh, they contributed to millenarian rhetoric. They contributed to uprisings like the Chalambwe Revolt of 1915, which had many causes, um, but the, the government's coercive measures were, were certainly among them. And it wasn't really until the Great War, World War I, which was fought uh, on African soil, that uh, healthcare became a more important part of the government's effort um, to uh, to interact with Africans in their daily lives. Uh, the The Great War... Uh, involved vast amounts of carrier labor. That's laborers, African laborers, who were made to be beasts of burden, who were kidnapped from their homes uh, by the tens, even hundreds of thousands, uh, and, and made to carry uh, British and German uh, munitions and um, and food items and all sorts of uh, needs for the war effort through. Uh, the African landscape in, in order for this, uh, this fight to continue uh, between the British and the Germans, in this case, in, in East Africa. And during this effort, uh, the British did set up some, what they called carrier hospitals. These were ill-provisioned uh, uh, sites of some medical care, not very expert medical care, but it was the first time for many Africans that they had encountered this aspect of European rule, and when the when the war ended uh, some uh, some Africans, when they returned to their villages, did ask their chiefs to ask the um, the colonial officials to set up uh, health centers to set up some something akin to the carrier hospitals in peacetime and The chief medical officer at the time did make an effort to do this, and that was part of the um, the first system of health centers, rural health centers, that were set up, um, dispensaries—they were often called—in—in uh, uh, in what was then
0: Nyasaland.
1: Yep.
0: Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, was there also a connection between these and also the social unrest that emerged also in the Great Depression period and in the interwar in the interwar years? And I know uh, in Northern Rhodesia in Ghana, Mombasa, there were all of these uh, social unrest that prompted the uh, Colonial Development and Welfare Act. Did those also help to push the local administration toward setting up this healthcare system?
1: Certainly. Uh, more so perhaps in, in the places you mentioned than in Malawi or Neosolanda, as it was known at the time. But that played a large role. Uh, the Colonial Development Act of 1929 Um, which was itself driven in part by uh, unrest in the Metropole in the UK and the Colonial Development and Welfare Act of 1940, uh, which was itself driven by uh, some of the movements, um, the labor unrest, the strikes uh, that happened across the Caribbean and West Africa and to some extent in East Africa. Um, Those those measures did include uh, health spending. Um, the, the Colonial Development and Welfare Act of 1940 included more than that 20, 1929 Act, but those were important steps in the late colonial project to, um, to provide some measure of medical care, in part as a, a justification for their continued presence. There was growing acknowledgement among some, some parts of the, the British left that uh, it was becoming harder and harder to justify the colonial project, and healthcare and education uh, were were two of the main, uh, you know, the main crutches that that Britain's colonial propagandists uh, continued to rely on as a reason to stay. Uh, and so in Malawi there was uh, there was increased. Uh, spending on healthcare during those moments. Um, but because Malawi was not seen as a, um, an important economic center for British colonialism, nor, frankly, as, a, uh, as one of the greatest centers of unrest, it didn't receive the, the share of health spending that some of the colonies in the Caribbean and, and West Africa uh, did receive.
0: Yeah, in the in the post World War II um, period, we see the influence of the the Fabians. Um, so, how did their policies shaped healthcare in in Africa? Did the changes at Whitehall um, mean better healthcare for Africans or to the people of uh, of Malawi? Yeah.
1: yeah, that was a very interesting moment. The, the The end of the Second World War brought with it all sorts of new language about what. You know what the colonial project was about, and what Africans, uh, African subjects, were entitled to, and what um, what the end of the war would bring. And we we know that in the UK it brought uh, the the birth or the consolidation, at least, of a of a welfare state, of a cradle to the grave welfare state that included um, healthcare that was was free at the point of care for every citizen, and that language. Uh, you know, in the Beverage Report and in the, in the Fabians and in the, uh, the new labor government, that occasioned a lot of hand-wringing about what did this mean for Africans? Uh, what did this mean for places like Malawi? Were they entitled to the same rights as, uh, as a British uh, citizen living in London or living in, um, elsewhere in the U.K.? And there was, you know, there was a lot of, uh, of rationalization even then about how, you know, how perhaps those two weren't the same. That a Londoner and a Malawian didn't actually have the same rights and responsibilities. And one of the ways that this, uh, this needle was threaded was the claim of what was called primitive social security or traditional social security, that Africans in their villages had their own ways of providing for one another, that would be disrupted, or at the very least not helped by these um, more industrial measures of social security that were coming to the fore in the UK. And so, you know, even the, the new labor government, as, uh, as progressive as it was for the time, um, found its way to, to limit its spending or its responsibilities to colonial subjects by by making reference to these supposedly uh, traditional or primitive measures of social security, um, and we we know even at the time that that colonial officials knew that these these measures, while they were based in some reality, while there were certainly measures of social protection that that Africans had and had long had, they weren't sufficient. To deal with the exactions of colonialism, they weren't sufficient to deal with the the famine and the shortages and the want that were occasioned by uh, the 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 tax extractions of the war effort uh, and the um, you know the the labor extractions of of the war and and what came thereafter. So, you know, the this this wasn't an effort made in entirely good faith. But it, it was an interesting moment when new language came about and new rationalizations had to be made for what the government, the colonial government, would and would not do.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about um, healthcare in the years of the Federation. Um, if you also share with uh, my listeners a little bit about um, what this Federation uh, meant and why uh, it was dissolved. Um, did we see higher attendance at government health facilities uh, during uh, this year's and why?
1: Yeah, the federation was a project that I didn't know as much about when I began my studies, but became really central to understanding. You know what? How? What healthcare? What was the role of healthcare and governance? What was the role of healthcare and political legitimacy? This was an idea that had been batted around for some time, uh, at least for two decades before it came into being in, in the uh, mid nineteen fifties. The federation was this uh, uh, conglomeration of the governments of of um, Southern Rhodesia, Northern Rhodesia, and Nyasaland today's uh, Zimbabwe, Zambia, and Malawi in this single entity. It had been proposed by. Southern Rhodesia for some time, there are varied explanations for its existence. Perhaps it was a project by the Southern Rhodesians to try to extend their rule by, by forming a, um, a united front with some of the European settlers then living in Northern Rhodesia. Um, and perhaps it was an attempt to ensure that they would continue to uh, retain control as the British Empire receded. Um, because they were promising to take some of the financial burden of governing, uh, particularly Malawi, off of uh, the British purse. But in any case, in 1953, the governments became combined and and control over Malawi's governance shifted to a large extent from London to, uh, to Salisbury, to southern Rhodesia. And that meant for a lot of Malawians that things were gotten even worse that a government, while exploitative, uh, had been shifted from, uh, from London to a place that had an avowed white supremacist philosophy. And they knew many Malawians knew from working as migrant laborers in Southern Rhodesia, that while living in Malawi was hard uh, living in Southern Rhodesia entailed a whole new set of of rules, uh, similar to the apartheid regime in South Africa that they did not want any part of. So this was a, this was a government that faced opposition from the start. Malawi had been known for a long time as, as a peaceful place, but in the 1950s it was anything, but there were, um, there was unrest. There were, uh, there were protests, there were riots, uh, there was uh, large scale arrest, um, in the 1950s and the early 1960s, that led to the dissolution of this federation early in the 1960s and then to Malawi's independence in 1964. But during this period of unrest, the federation government tried really hard to justify its existence. And they put out pamphlets, they put out um, newspaper advertisements in London claiming that they were doing all sorts of things to help the Malawian, the Nyasaland people. And one of the things that they kept harping on was the the availability of new uh, new uh, healthcare centers, of new hospitals, uh, of new educational resources. They really leaned hard on healthcare as a justification for their rule. They they did indeed um, spend more than London had, more than the British metropole had on health and education. It still was a a fairly paltry amount and it wasn't nearly as much as they spent per capita in Southern Rhodesia and particularly on their European population in Southern Rhodesia, but it was more than Malawi had, had, uh, had garnered before. Um, that clearly wasn't enough to justify their existence in the eyes of Malawians, but it was an important part of, uh, of their propaganda at the time.
0: Thank you. Um let's turn to the early post-colonial period, uh, the administration of uh, President Hastings H- 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 um banda. Um I just want your take on um on three on three things, right? And you talked about them in your um in your book. So the imposition of fees um to use uh government health facilities, which he will reverse, uh, his resistance to population control measures. And also uh, his collaboration with um with foreign governments, so what's your take on these?
1: yeah bon- Hastings Kamuza Banda was a fascinating figure. He was an incredibly impressive person from you know a personal standpoint. He'd grown up in poverty in in Nyasaland he'd left fairly early in life where he went to South Africa and worked as a hospital cleaner before he found his way into education he'd convinced uh, some missionaries to fund his education eventually in the United States and he became a medical doctor he went to McCacquary Medical Co- uh, Medical College in in Tennessee before returning to uh, before going to the UK to become a, a private practitioner ended up in what is today Ghana um, where he practiced for a time and then returned to Nyasaland later in life as this 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 um, what was supposed to be a figurehead for the uh, anti-Federation movement and then quickly uh, consolidated control over that movement and became much, far more than a figurehead. He became uh, in, you know, the central locus of power and became president and then president for life and ended up ruling until shortly before his death in the early 1990s. Um, his method of, of governance you know, isn't exactly what you would expect from someone who had trained as a medical doctor. You would think that he would prioritize uh, hospital care, medical care, um, because of his training. But he actually ended up spending less than the federation government had on a per capita basis. Some of that was outside of his control. Some of that was because of uh, the demands of international finance. But some of it was because of his own personal priorities, And shortly after he, uh, took control in 1964, as uh, Malawi gained its independence from the UK, uh, he instituted, uh, fees. Now these fees weren't uh, his idea. They had been started by the Federation government and their imposition had been in the best way to think about it is as, as a condition of independence that the British wanted, uh, Malawi to, to rely on UK funds as little as possible as it became independent. And they wanted Malawi to raise its own funds and to limit its own expenses through things like a healthcare fee. And you can see in, in the historical record, this was, this was really a, um, a dictate. But Banda uh, did do his part and make sure that these fees were imposed. And even as he faced significant opposition in the months after independence, people uh said things like one one man in a in a village was hurt to say, is this the uh is this the freedom that we were told to die for in reference to the fees uh, Banda continued to insist on them until that is some of his own cabinet members some of the some of the people who he'd worked alongside to gain independence, uh, made a large issue of them and said that this, this could not continue. And so Banda did eventually drop the fees to the chagrin of uh, the, the British who he'd been working hand in hand with, but um, he did drop those fees eventually. Uh, and I thought that moment, uh, that three month period when for the first time, healthcare was actually not free at the point of care in Malawi, proved a, a pretty significant thing that, that healthcare had become, um, had become a central part of politics, had become an, an expectation of the populace that they wouldn't give up so easily. So, so that was one part of, of Bando's leadership. You, you also uh, asked about some other aspects of his leadership, one being his, his uh, fraught relationship with, with population control. Uh, during the late 1960s and, and 1970s, this demand of of, popula- of public health experts to make population control an important part of government policy was something that that um, Banda was not comfortable with. He had long uh, opposed uh, uh, birth control. He, he had banned some. Uh, some foreigners who had uh, passed out materials related to birth control, um, but more than that, it it seemed to run against one of the symbolisms of his rule, which was one of abundance. He spoke of you know providing for his people. Uh, he spoke as uh, an inkoswe, as a as a it's it's a term of kinship, implying uh, kind of a head of household uh, that he he assumed himself to be the. Uncosway number one. He was the the one who would provide and protect his people, and to have outside advisors coming in and saying that he couldn't provide this abundance, that he had to limit population through pretty um uh, pretty harsh measures, the kind of harsh measures that you were seeing at the time in South Africa and in India with mass sterilizations and imposed IUD insertions. Um, he was not. He was not going to have that in, in his own country. So this was another moment when Banda's philosophy, um, his, his own ideology of rule, became a central part of Malawi's um, experience of healthcare. And then you talked about, finally, his, um, his collaboration with uh, the white supremacist, uh, white supremacist regimes elsewhere in the region. And it's true, uh, for a long time, Malawi was one of the only uh, Black African nations to, uh, to collaborate, to, to uh, ally themselves in UN bodies and in international circles with apartheid South Africa, um, with uh, Portuguese rule in Mozambique, um, with Southern Rhodesia before it became independent, uh, before it became Zimbabwe. And he made use of this uh, this fact to extract some resources from uh, the United States, from the um, from those regimes themselves. From uh, one example I give is a uh, the Gobenkian Foundation, which is affiliated with uh, the Portuguese. And he he was very explicit. He says, "Well, while I'm you know while I'm allied with you, I I do expect some." some measure of uh, of recompense and one of the things he used uh he used that allegiance to to garner was was uh new hospitals and new healthcare facilities uh, built by funds donated by those entities so you know he uh he knew his place in the world and he knew what it would garner him um and that's a part of Malawi's history that i think has been relatively little told um Malawi has been seen as kind of a an outlying country. While a lot of Black Africa stood together against these regimes in the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties, uh, Malawi stood apart. And that's certainly true. Um, but there were uh fruits to be garnered from that, you know, from that from that allegiance that that Banda knew how to make use of
0: so let's uh talk about um the hiv aids um epidemic or pandemic we know that um uh we've been talking about the poor state of um malawi's um health system and it wasn't just equipped to handle uh this disease and there were a lot of foreign um interventions um in malawi to help curb hiv aids so my question for you is looking at the records did these um Work or did uh, corruption doom some of these interventions?
1: Yeah, the area, the era of HIV was one of it was kind of two different eras in Malawi's history, and I suspect for, for much of the region, you know, the early 19, eight, the, from the early nineteen eighties through the late nineteen nineties, it was unmitigated disaster. I mean, for for healthcare workers, you know, reading their accounts, both. Malawian medical workers and and foreigners working in the country, they speak of just utter desolation, where people were dying en masse without the drugs and the care that they needed. Um, And, you know, the the tone is just incredibly uh, sad and desperate. That does change in the early 2000s when. You saw new uh sources of medical spending um, coming from sources like uh the UN and uh, the United States government in the form of the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS relief. Um and these were and, and from the UK as well, um, and other European countries, these were you know unprecedented in terms of scale, and they allowed for healthcare uh, and specifically antiretroviral treatment that the country had never seen before. And they've saved hundreds of thousands of lives. Um, and there's no doubt that many Malawians are alive today thanks to these efforts. Um, have they been sufficient? Uh, in no way. Uh, there is still a tremendous lack of healthcare. And, uh, some of the latter parts of my book, I talk about the shortages and stockouts, uh, that continue to plague the country, where uh, people go to their healthcare facility expecting uh, some measure of care, but because of shortages in spending and mismanagement, uh, they can't find the the drugs they need. They they don't have access to the trained professionals that they need, um, and this has led to some some dismal stories. I mean, even the the president himself, Dengue Mutarika, when he came into the uh the sent the 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 flagship hospital of the country in cardiac arrest in twenty twelve. The hospital did not administer epinephrine or adrenaline as it's sometimes caused uh called that which is the main medicine used in cardiac resuscitation because they did not have any. So that you know that just does speaks to the the scale of the want, the scale of the you know the continued Uh, scarcity in the country in 2012, even after a lot of these new AIDS measures had been put in place, that the president of the country did not have access to a basic medication that could potentially have saved his life.
0: Thank you. Um, Earlier in the interview, you talked about uh, the CZRU Uh, TZR loan. Um, So what was the impact of of this loan on healthcare in colonial uh, Nyasaland?
1: Yeah, this is a, it it was hard to think about how to fit this into a history of healthcare, but it was unavoidable because the TZR loan is something that you can't, you can't understand healthcare in Malawi until you understand things like the TZR loan. So the Trans-Zambezi Railway was built in the early 1920s. And it was meant to connect Malawi, then the Oceland, a landlocked nation to the sea, through what is today Mozambique. And that sounds like a, a laudable endeavor. You know, Malawi certainly needs access to trade. But the way that it was built was incredibly illogical. It was built along a route that was not the most logical route, even at the time. It was so long th- that it promised that anything that was transported along that railway could not be profitably sold elsewhere because of the cost of transport. And this was known by even the European settlers in Nyasaland who did not want it built. And they knew it would be costly and unusable. But there was a a a Belgian financier named Libert Worry, who was extremely powerful. He was known at the time as the other Rhodes, referring to Cecil Rhodes, for his you know connections to power, for his uh, involvement in all sorts of business enterprises, and he had a lot of connections to to London, to to Whitehall, to the Colonial Office, and he used those connections to ensure that Nyasaland was made not only to the railway, but to guarantee its profitability to him. So that they would they would take out the loan and they would ensure that should the should the railway prove a bust, which it did, that Zealand's government would be responsible for making up the losses and ensuring that his endeavor was profitable. And paying off that loan and, and ensuring this profitability meant that for decades, Nyasaland had to spend a huge portion of its budget, at some points over 40% of its budget on this railway loan. And that's money that was not being spent on healthcare, that was not being spent on education, that was not being spent on agriculture, it was being spent on a railway that was uneconomical, unprofitable, and illogical from the start. Because people like Libert Uri had the ear of people in power in London. So if you want to understand the, the sources of scarcity, the nature of scarcity, whether it's, whether it's inevitable or constructed, you have to understand things like the TZR railway because that prevented uh, a, a huge swath of Myanmar's own resources drawn from the hut taxes and income taxes and, and luxury taxes um, of the country from being spent on things that would benefit the wel- welfare of its people.
0: Thank you. Uh, so, um, what are some key things uh, people who read your book should take away with them?
1: Well, I hope a few things. I mean, one is that at a basic level, this is a chronicle of healthcare in Malawi, which I think is useful on its own terms. Um, it's 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 a story that it has been too seldom told. There are great historians of Malawi, and I stand on their backs when I tell this, uh, or stand on their shoulders rather. Uh, when I tell this story. But uh, I still think that on its own terms, contributing to that historiography is an important uh, part of the book. More broadly, I hope that it contributes to the history of, of global health and public health in allowing us to see the rhetoric of scarcity uh, for what it is, which is very often uh, a way to obscure obligations of the rich to the poor, of the colonizer to the colonized, um, and rather than as an immutable fact. And then I want us to, I want us too, to see that this, these claims of scarcity, while powerful, aren't um, perfect in their use. They, they, don't, they don't always succeed. Uh, and some, some things that have overcome them are a little surprising. You know, there, there have been um, moments of unrest. You talked about them in the 1940s um, that have helped uh, um, colonized peoples to gain greater access to resources for healthcare. Uh, sometimes it came in the form of, of elite individuals who had some, uh, some way to protest, some way to complain about the the paucity of healthcare and this came in the form of of uh, colonial doctors sometimes or or after independence uh doctors like John David Chipongwe who challenged Hastings Kamuzu Banda to provide better healthcare for uh his patients the women in his obstetrics ward where he worked as an obstetrician um so those kinds of elite level uh, actions can be important um and so I hope that the book does that as well, to show that while these claims of scarcity have been ubiquitous and have been very powerful, they're not, um, they're not the whole story, that there's more to the story. And there's more that can be done even in the face of these claims to, uh, to garner the resources that people need to, to, uh, to get decent health care.
0: So uh, my last question to you is, um, what are you working on right now?
1: yeah i'm 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 working on trying to become a better doctor most of the time. Um, I'm currently in the midst of my residency training in emergency medicine, uh, and that is a four- year training program where I learn how to work in an emergency department uh, and and provide care to people who come in with all manner of emergencies, from uh, heart attacks to trauma uh, to gunshot wounds like the one I saw. In that young man, who I call innocent in the book, um, and I think that's given me uh, both uh, a knowledge base from which to draw to to understand what what healthcare uh, can look like and what what people suffering from health conditions need, um, as as well as a, a jumping off point for for future research. And so I do hope that after this training and even you know, the time I have in the midst of it, I can return to, uh, to Malawi, uh, to continue research. Um, some of my research now has to do with the history of medical debt. I hope to make it a transnational history of medical debt, of the, the ways that, uh, spending on medical care, out-of-pocket spending on medical care, uh, imposed on patients leads to impoverishment and to, um, uh, poor health outcomes, uh, and I think that some of the things I see here in the United States echo some of the things I saw in Malawi, um, you know, in the, the, the imposition that healthcare care expend, expenditures, um, uh, the, the, the causes of impoverishment, the causes of poor health outcomes really do often comes down to when we force patients to pay for their care, when we expect them to, uh, to pay out of pocket for health care. That can lead to some pretty poor outcomes, both, both here in, at home in the United States and and elsewhere in places like Malawi.
0: Are you thinking of also practicing in Malawi as well? Because you said you think you're thinking of doing some research back there. Uh, will you also be practicing while you're there uh, doing your research?
1: I hope I can. I mean that that does require the the permission of the Malawian government and uh, and a role that would be useful to Malawi's. Um, uh, existing healthcare practitioners, so I hope to, you know, I do hope to practice uh, there. It would be a, a real uh, dream come true uh, to do so. When I was there last, I was in the middle of medical school, but I was not in a medical role while I was in Malawi. Um, and I, I hope that once my training is finished and I have more to uh, uh, to offer, I can I can work in a cl- clinical setting because that my goal all along has been to marry the clinical uh with the historical and so i hope that that will i hope that that will prove useful in the future
0: thank you very much dr luke mezak for coming on the show
1: thank you thank you again for reading the book and taking the time to speak with me
0: thank you all for listening my name is dr beckett kelina your host